Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com slash Peter and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another edition of the Island Travel Podcast. This week, we pay tribute to the most populous island in the United States, Long Island in New York. In fact, if it were a state, it would be the 13th biggest. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I grew up in the summers here, not on Long Island, but across the Great South Bay on Fire Island, a 32-mile-long barrier beach and now a U.S. national seashore. But if you're looking for great history, ranging from the earliest settlers to America's wealthiest elite, to the birthplace of so much aviation, to a great piece of history, the Fire Island Lighthouse, then we've got some great conversations coming up. As many of you know, I'm just a little bit of an airplane buff, so I'm right at home at Long Island's Cradle of Aviation Museum, and so is Andrew Parton, its president. Long Island is where aviation grew up. Then some of you might remember one of America's wealthiest men, Cornelius Vanderbilt, But then there was William Vanderbilt. He not only made a lot of money, he collected things. And when he died, his mansion became a ready-made museum. I'll chat with Elizabeth Whalen Morgan, its executive director. The light still flashes every seven and a half seconds atop the Fire Island Lighthouse. Built in 1858, it was decommissioned by the Coast Guard in 1973. Ah, but it still operates because it's manned by volunteers. The Coast Guard will tell you it's no longer an aid to navigation, but every captain worth his or her salt on the Atlantic, as well as on the Great South Bay, will tell you otherwise. Tony Feminella is one of the volunteers who runs the place, and great history still continues there. First up, Andrew Parton. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have, or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, 
We think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. How are you, sir? Good, very good. And it's true. I mean, when you take a look at... uh, including people like Charles Lindbergh. I mean, when you go back to take a look at where they flew from or where the planes were developed, where the technology was developed, where the design happened, and where it actually flew, Long Island played a huge role. Well, we're not the birthplace of aviation. I know, that's, I know, that's Kitty Hawk. I know. Right. But we are where it grew up, uh, and that's why we call it the cradle of aviation, because so many uh, firsts in aviation history took place here. I mean, such as? Well, you had uh, the first... Um, Air show, so to speak, took place in 1910. It was a time trial to fly from Belmont Park around the Statue of Liberty and back. It was the world's largest air show at the time in 1910. You had Lindbergh's flight, which took off uh, from Roosevelt Field, which sits next to the museum. Um, You had the first blind flight by Jimmy Doolittle, where he flew without being able to uh, look outside his cockpit. Uh, totally covered and using just instrumentation to do it. And by the way, that's how pilots train today. Exactly. If you're going to learn how to, get, if you're going to get an instrument rating as a captain, you wear the hood, and it's 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 a little scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, think of it back in the 30s. <laughs> exactly. But what's interesting about your museum is that how many different planes you have there. We have over 70 planes and spacecraft in the collection, uh, and everything has a connection to the region, being at Long Island and the New York City metro area. Uh, so we have everything from a 1909 Blario, which actually flew uh, at where the museum stands, uh, all the way through the lunar module, uh, which were lovingly built by Grumman out in Bethpage. And yet when you take a look at New York and Long Island, there are so many airports, some of them still operating. And I'm not talking about LaGuardia, and I'm not talking about Islip. I'm talking about you know, Floyd Bennett Field, which used to be operating, uh, or of course, uh, you mentioned Roosevelt Island, you know, I mean, uh, Roosevelt Field, I mean, and so much history there. But the other thing that you have at the museum, which I find fascinating, is you have the Pan Am Museum. Yes, we've partnered with the Pan Am Museum Foundation. Uh, they have the third floor of the museum as it stands. And it, it tells the great story of Pan Am, uh, how Pan Am developed, grew up, uh, and unfortunately how it, it ended in the, in the 90s. But it's it, it draws a lot of people who have a lot of passion for the Pan Am brand. And, and by the way, I have, I have an admission to make. I've done damage in your gift shop. We Serious ap- damage in the gift <laughs> shop. We appreciate it. We hope you come back again. No, because <laughs> yeah, model airplanes. I mean, I'm a nut for model airplanes. But when you think about all of Long Island in aviation, right, there was a time when the seaplanes were everywhere, right? right? They, uh, like on Far Island right now, you don't have seaplanes because they've been banned by the National Seashore, I get that. But when you grow up with seaplanes, it's part of that lore, right? The Pan Am situation, even though Pan Am was only taking off from, in those days, Idlewild, right? The very first Pan Am 707, right? The Clipper America, I mean, that came from... Well, actually, the, the early uh, Pan Am Clipper flights yeah. took place at Port Washington Harbor. And then uh, also the Marine Air Terminal at LaGuardia. LaGuardia. By the way, if you've never been to the Marine Air Terminal at LaGuardia, some of it is still very much intact, uh, and the architecture there. I think JetBlue's got the terminal now, though I think they're moving out. But the thing is, what a beautiful building. And and for those people who looked at LaGuardia as an eyesore 
And, and as Joe Biden said when he was vice president, you know, a third world airport, which in many cases insulted a lot of other third world airports, um, even though it's bright and gleaming and shining and new, they, they have not really touched the Marine Air Terminal. No, they've kept it uh, the way it is. We've, we've uh, assisted them with some photos and, and uh, uh, artifacts from that period of time. There's a great letter that Mayor LaGuardia had sent to the heads of all the airlines. This is before LaGuardia was built. So it was Eddie Rickenbacker who ran uh, Eastern. It was Juan Tripp who ran Pan Am. And the letter said, we're going to have one final meeting. You can bring all the engineers you want, but I don't want any lawyers. (laughs) (laughs) If only that letter would be true today. (laughs) And by the way, the pictures there from LaGuardia of the Pan Am Clippers in the water, I mean, unbelievable. Yeah, we have a great exhibit uh, called The Golden Age, and it, it focuses on the uh, Port Washington Harbor with all the aircraft that flew in and out of there. Andrew, the planes that you have on exhibit there are some of the things you're never going to see anywhere else because they were built here. Exactly. I mean, we have the first plane that Charles Lindbergh ever flew, which was a World War I surplus Curtis Jenny. He bought it uh, for $250 after the war and became a barnstormer in the Midwest. He'd kind of strafe a little town, land in an open field, and charge people for rides. We actually have a photo of him viewing the restoration of the aircraft by our volunteers back in the early 70s. And um, that's one of our sort of crown jewels of the collection. We also have the sister ship to the Spirit of St. Louis. There were three built at the same time. And by the way, if you've never seen the Spirit of St. Louis, which you can see at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., and there's a replica of it, believe it or not, at the airport in St. Louis. But the most amazing thing to me was there was no front window. No. He, it, it was as only a side window. I mean, it's, it's bizarre. And, and a periscope. That's yeah. how he was able to view it. Well, you know, you had to, uh, not sure how long or how much fuel you needed to get across the Atlantic. You wanted to add a lot of extra fuel tanks in the front. And that's where it was. Yeah, that's where it was. Of course, they've never found Lindbergh's lunch. No, or his flask. Um, Did he have a flask? He had a flask. But we get school kids coming through, and the, the biggest question is, well, how did he go to the bathroom? Well, now you have an opportunity to answer that question, Andrew. How did he go to the bathroom? We don't know. The legend is the flask. But <laughs> Well, if, if there was an old Burt Reynolds movie. I forget the name of it. But it was, it was called The Motorman's Friend. It was a bottle. <laughs> hey, go back and look at the movie. That's right. You also have the lunar, lunar module. Yeah, we have... Uh, there were... Obviously, six missions to the moon. Um, All of the lunar modules were built by Grumman and Bethpage. Uh, We have one that didn't go to the moon. It would have been either Apollo 18 or 19. It's fully loaded, displayed on a lunar environment. Uh, And it's really the only one on the planet that is designed to go to the moon. One at the Smithsonian is hanging, and it's a replica. uh, And there's one at the Kennedy Space Center as well that's that's more of a replica. But this was sitting in a warehouse at Grumman. This one's locked and loaded. Locked and loaded and ready to go. We also have the first lunar module built. It was called a test article. Uh, and that's where a lot of engineers from NASA still come up to this day to take a look at the actual pieces that we have. Yeah, you mentioned Grumman. Grumman was the big manufacturer here on Long Island. They, at one point, had 30,000 people working. Uh, we built, Long Island built more planes uh, for the war effort in World War II than anywhere else in the world, between Grumman and, and Republic. And, and Republic. And, and in fact, you were targeted during World War II by the Germans. Uh, yeah, there were um, U-boats and um, others trying to get onto the Long Island, knowing that uh, a lot of the aircraft manufacturing was done right here. The very famous story, for those people who remember this, and of course I'm dating myself to say it, is all along Fire Island, which is 32 miles long, there were these huge wooden watchtowers. 
think of a lifeguard stand only like on steroids. I mean, it, I mean, it was literally 30 to 40 feet tall. And volunteers in the war effort would be manning this at night, every night, all along the beach, probably 30 of these watchtowers, looking for any signs of a U-boat. And one time during the war, late at night, one of the watchtower guys spotted a German U-boat that surfaced right off the coast of Fire Island. It was as close as they ever got to America. And they watched with their binoculars as four guys got into a rubber life raft dressed in jackets and ties and fedoras and came, came ashore. And what they were trying to do was to cross Fire Island, which, by the way, is only a third of a mile wide, to get on a ferry boat, a regularly scheduled ferry boat, to go across to Long Island and blow up Grumman. Right. And they got caught. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, again, it was uh, the center of a lot of activity during the war uh, from um, Grumman, Republic, and a lot of other smaller manufacturers. And what happened to Grumman in terms of their facilities? Uh, they have roughly about 300 folks working there now, uh, mostly on uh, electronic surveillance equipment for the military. Uh, so there's still a player here on Long Island, and we have about 400 um, small, uh, mid-sized aerospace companies still here. Of course, but your real secret gem here, which is my favorite airport, is Islip. That's right. MacArthur. <laughs> we, have, uh, we have an exhibit on the three airports, MacArthur, uh, uh, Kennedy, and uh, LaGuardia. Of course, uh, Kennedy, formerly known as Idlewild. As Idlewild. Uh, and it, we also have a, a map of Long Island from World War I that shows the 11 airfields that were built at the time. A lot of them were very small. But then you had Roosevelt Field and Mitchell Field, which sat right next to each other. But Islip was still operating. In fact, anytime they close Kennedy, anytime they close Newark, anytime they close LaGuardia, I go out to Islip, it's open, and we fly. And it's very easy in and out. It is. And great north-south routes down to Florida uh, and, and uh, in that part of the country. I'm waiting for them to go real fast east-west. I want, I want flights to the west. I, you know, I keep telling the guys at Frontier, go to Denver and on to L.A. Right. Uh, or Southwest used to have a nonstop flight from, from Islip to uh, Las Vegas. That's Transcon. Well, and now Breeze is coming in, yeah. uh, which would be exciting for them because uh, it's what comes first. Is it the airlines or the people? So... Well, right now, with the, with the population base you have on, on Long Island, the airlines come in first and the people will come. Yeah. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. My thanks to Andrew. Now we'll take a trip to the Gold Coast on the North Shore of Long Island. And that's where you'll find the Vanderbilt Museum. It's not just a building, but a 43-acre estate. And Elizabeth Whalen Morgan knows what's inside and how it all got there. Elizabeth, welcome. Yes, thank you so much for having me here today. So I'm first thrilled. of all, let's, let's put it in perspective. It's in Centerport. Yes. Where is that? Centerport, Long Island. Where is Centerport, Long Island? Centerport is on the north shore of Long Island um, in an area uh, that's been referred to as the Gold Coast. Which, of course, was where he lived. Yes. And, and that's where all the man... We talked today about McMansions. This was no McMansion. This was the mansion. 
This is, it's a very, very beautiful place. It's a 43-acre estate, and um, the gentleman that lived there was William K. Vanderbilt II, and he is the great-grandson of Cornelius Vanderbilt. And um, he, he, this was basically his summer home, and he delighted, uh, he, um, he was enjoyed. He, he liked entertaining. Yes, he did. He did, although this home did not have a ballroom. So I it was, hate when that happens. <laughs> I know. So he basically invited his family and dear friends for visiting, but did not have r large parties there. But let's put the Gold Coast in perspective. We're not just talking about one mansion. We're talking like 1,200 of them. Yes, yes. So this is one of the uh, one of the remaining mansions that stands today, and it's very special uh, because of that. So so many of those mansions were, you know, demolished over time, and um, so and it's also right on the water, right on Northport Bay. So the scenic views location, are location, location. yes, the scenic views are are really just so striking. And of course, if you're going to have a mansion that big, you got to fill it. So yes. he, was, he was a collector. He was, yes. Mr. Vanderbilt uh, circumnavigated the globe twice in his life on his ships. he brought stuff back. He did. He did. He, he visited so many different areas around the globe and collected items and basically opened his own museum, which is called the Hall of Fishes. It's his mu uh, marine museum that's on the property. And uh, it's, it, it actually opened to the public in 1922. Whoa. Yes. And what's in it? Well, it's filled with all sorts of uh, fish and uh, taxidermied fish and um, uh, specimens from the sea. Well, and plus there's a planetarium. Yes, we have a modern planetarium. It was built in 1971, open to the public, and um, it, we have all sorts of wonderful programming for families, kids, night sky shows, and we have an observatory that is open on Friday nights for the public. You, know, you talk about fish. Let's not gloss over that. You have the largest white shark. Yes, yes. Anywhere in the world. Well, we in in our habitat area, um, one of the the most special special things we have on the property is this 32 foot taxidermied whale shark, which Mr. Van Vanderbilt purchased from a fisherman right off of Fire Island, right out here, right out here. Wow. Yes. What year? Do you remember? Um, oh my goodness. Back when great white sharks were really great yeah. white, white off Fire Island. Probably in the 20s, yes. Wow, it's still there today. <laughs> yes, it is, it is. And it's um, quite quite uh, an interesting thing to see. And it's, it's hanging from the ceiling, and um, children just love it. Adults love it, too. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> when people come to the museum, what's the first thing that they see that surprises them? Well, when they enter the property, I think it's the the really majestic views, and um, it's as if you're entering a time capsule. Everything on the property is exactly how it was when Mr. V Vanderbilt lived there. And so there's just so much history. Um, it's, uh, and he had a sense of history, because otherwise he never would have opened the museum. Absolutely. Absolutely. He was very conscious of wanting to collect items and leave, it, leave them there in place for future generations. You know, the biggest problem that I have today when I travel is the, the seeming lack of context, and the seeming lack of perspective. People can look at stuff, but they don't really know its, its place or how it got to be there. 
you tell those stories. Yes, we do. We do. And um, we have a wonderful uh, uh, team of people on the property that, that um, share these stories with the community, Long Island, beyond. And we certainly do have a lot of international travelers that visit us every single year. And the thing to me that's, that's well, to me it's, it's, it's uh, always amazing, is that people will go on the Long Island Expressway or they'll go on the Southern State Parkway or the Northern State Parkway and they have no idea that once they make the turnoff, they're going into a different world. Yes, exactly, exactly. It really is. It's so such a beautiful place. There are, there's a seaplane hangar and a boathouse. Whoa, 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 whoa. A seaplane <laughs> hangar. Think about that. The guy yes. had his own seaplane. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And in fact, he had a pilot and a co-pilot that lived on the property. And he spent time traveling with his wife, Rosamond, and another couple, the Huntingtons. Um, they traveled down to South America. And this was in 1937. Elizabeth, 40,000 objects. Yes. And they had to be cataloged. Yes. Everyone has a story. Yes. What's the, the craziest one for you? Because, I mean, here's a guy who was a collector who went all over the world when people really weren't world travelers like that. Yes. Right? And he loaded up trailers and steamers and brought them all back. So it has to be one of the most eclectic collections. Oh, it's definitely eclectic. It ranges from all types of sea creatures and pre-atomic invertebrate and through there's an ethnographic collection just items from all over the world it's really a remarkable place and i mean this guy was collecting everything from you mentioned the fish to weather vanes i mean right yes yes so mr vanderbilt had many artisans that worked on the property over the years and there's so many architectural details that can be found throughout uh, the property but one of the one of the items that stands out the most is the collection of yellen samuel yellen was one of the finest metal workers in the in the world really at that time and is regarded as really being comparable to the Tiffany of, of glass. And so his work is all over, dotted throughout the whole property. And one of the most striking pieces is the weather vane that is on top of the bell tower. Now it's currently of not there. there's a bell tower. Yes. <laughs> there is, is, is there a bell? Yes, there is. Do you ring the bell? Yes, it rings. We hope it rings on every hour on the hour, but sometimes it's off a little bit. So but. sometimes there's a manual override? Yes, so there and, yes. Yeah. So this weather vane must be huge. It is. It's nearly 20 feet in length, and it has decorated with serpents and sea creatures, and it's beautiful. And one of the most wonderful things is, is that we just received a grant from the Robert David Lyon Gardner Foundation to restore this weather vane. So Spirit Ironworks, uh, they're on the South Shore. They're going to be restoring this, and within a year, it will be back on the bell tower. You know, I don't know if there's a, a Yellow Pages anymore, and I don't know if there is a Yellow Pages, if there's something called Weather Vane Restorers. It's probably hard to find these guys. <laughs> yes, definitely. They're very specialized. Absolutely. Yes. Is there stained glass on the property? Yes. Yes. Beautiful glass work everywhere throughout the property. And it's there's so many details. Uh, the Vanderbilts, they had a, a family emblem and it was an acorn. So you can see these acorns weaved into all these details throughout the property. I keep meaning to count how many acorns I can find on well, the you property. Know, it's, look, if you're going to have a mansion, you have to have a bell tower. If you have the bell tower, you have to have an <laughs> emblem. And let's yes. not forget the seaplane hangar. Yes. Yes, I mean, yes. And there's a boathouse as well. Of course there is. Yes. Is there a boat in the boathouse? No, 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 not currently. Oh, but what a disappointment. <laughs> there was a dock and it was one of the, the dock was one of the first details to be built on the property. And Mr. Vanderbilt, he chose this property because it's the deep water 
in, in the Northport Bay. So. so you could put a boat back in there. Oh, uh, yes, absolutely, eventually. And you, uh, here's a lesson, and you could give tours on the boat. We, someday we might do that. Now, the boat would be moored out in the, in the water, but yes, we do need to restore the boathouse. It needs, it needs some care and restoration at this point. So somewhere in the Yellow Pages, there's a boathouse restoring person, <laughs> and you could do that. Yes, yes. <laughs> We're looking forward to doing that, absolutely. Do we, do we remember what kind of boat he had? So he had many, many boats in of his course, lifetime. Yes. So he his his uh, boat one boat that he circumnavigated the world wa- with was his the Alva named after his mother. And um, That's a big boat he also then. had a, yes, it was very large. Mhm. Yes, uh, 260 feet, I believe. Would not fit in that boathouse. No, it would no. not. No, it would not. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Well, great stories to be told there. Great storytellers, right? Absolutely. You're open all year round? Uh, yes, we are. We did close for a few weeks course, during this COVID. time. Yes, yep. yes. But we open again as of February 5th, and we are open year-round, six days through the summer months and, and four days on the off-season. And uh, we are just thrilled to have everybody visit. Well, the timing's perfect because this is February 5th. So you did, you did Wonderful. Just, see? I'm glad I got you on the opening. <laughs> Wonderful. I know. My thanks to Elizabeth. It was built more than 160 years ago and remains literally a beacon of light, as Tony Feminella from the Fire Island Lighthouse Preservation Society can attest. Tony, you've been out here how long? I've been out here nine years. Yeah, but you're a Long Islander. I'm a Long Islander my whole life. I could never tell by that accent. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) But... You know, even though it's no longer operated by the by the Coast Guard, it is still my aid to navigation. I look for it every time I cross the bay. Every every ship. When I was a young kid, my mom would take me to the to the to the ocean on on Saturdays at five in the afternoon and six in the afternoon, and we'd watch the ocean liners sail in front of Far Island on their way to Europe, or coming back into New York Harbor early in the morning on their way back from Europe. It was a major waterway. And, and the lighthouse is a major aid to navigation. To this day, it is still, it's still used that way, even though you guys are the ones who operate it. Right. It was decommissioned at the end of 1973 by the Coast Guard as an and, aid And they to wanted to tear it down. They wanted to tear it down. The Lighthouse Preservation Society was formed and uh, saved the lighthouse. Uh, today, it's, it's an aid to private navigation. That's, that's what we like to tell people. And I got to tell you something. People know when the light is out. We get phone calls immediately. Uh, so people are still using it. And, you know, I'm a fisherman. I fish out here, and I'm looking for it myself. Of course. But the history of it, built in 1858? Correct. And then redid. Then they rebuilt it again. Well, what happened was in, it, right after the uh, Coast Guard decommissioned it, it fell in disrepair and from 1974 till 1982 when the Preservation Society was formed. They raised $1.3 million. They refurbished the lighthouse to its 1939 uh, origins, and then what happened was they did a lighting of the lighthouse on uh, May 25th of 1986. So they relit it back in 86. And it's been flashing ever since? Ever since, right. Is it every six and a half seconds or every seven seconds? Well, what it is, it takes 15 seconds to make one revolution and there's a light bulb on either side. So it's that 7.5 second flash. All right. So I, I was wrong by a second. Yeah, yeah. Which is why I'm always never, <laughs> which is why I'm, why I'm lost. <laughs> I mean, but you can see it anywhere from 20 to 24 miles out to sea. And that's what makes the difference. Right. And by the way, there's not a ship captain that I know that doesn't look for that lighthouse. Yeah, that's true. We hear that all the time. It's a tradition that doesn't die. Now, it's also the lens of the lighthouse, which is fascinating. Well, the, the original lens from 1858 was called a First Order Fresnel lens. 
And that lens uh, was, was revolutionary back in the 1850s. Uh, and that's, that stayed on the top of the lighthouse from 1858 till 1933, when then it came down and it went to the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. And then what happened was they offered it back to us in the year 2000. We brought it back and we built this magnificent uh, building to house it. And then the lens up there now? The lens up there now is just an electric, uh, electric lens, that's all. Yeah, but it's powerful. It's, you can, like I said, it's 1,000 uh, watt light bulbs, you know, and there's four of them. There's two on each side, so when one burns out, it automatically switches to the second one. And of course, Fire Island was known for a number of major shipwrecks, um, in which you used to have the rescue squad here, right? In, in fact, in the lighthouse, you have basically a historical recollection right. of all those life-saving boats. Right. Which, by the way, were not big. Right. I mean, and these, and these shipwrecks would happen in the winter months. And boy, I mean, if you didn't freeze on the way out, you froze on the way back. Yeah, we, we've had, you know, anywhere between six and 700 shipwrecks out here over the years. We've had some very famous ones. Uh, we've had the Elizabeth back in 1850, which is, which is very, very, uh, it, it's one of the first ones where a very famous person actually died on Elizabeth, Margaret Fuller was a, uh, a journalist back then in 1850. She was returning from uh, Italy with her husband and a newborn, and they perished in, the, in the, uh, the Elizabeth, the wreck of the Elizabeth. And then, of course, the shipwrecks, every once in a while, if you have a, a heavy winter storm, some of that shipwreck comes up. It, uh, it does, like if you go out to the breach, one has just keeps on uh, unearthing itself, the Bessie White out there. It's out by the breach, out by Brookhaven. Right, and, and by the way, you go further east, you'll find it. I mean, it, and, and, you know, every time we have a winter storm, the guys who know will call me and say, you got to come out to the beach today because there's something there. It, it happens all the time. You know, we're finding things. You know, we found pieces of um, the crane at one time that they had out here on the beach. It unearthed itself, you know, from the, the surf and the sand. I mean, it's just unbelievable the stuff that, uh, you know, gets uncovered when you get a storm. But the great history here is... Fire Island is essentially a barrier beach. Right. It really protects all of Long Island, and if it, if it wasn't here, Long Island might find itself underwater. Absolutely, this barrier beach definitely saves the mainland. Uh, you know, we do, take, we do take a beating. We've been taking a beating the last couple of weeks with these uh, storms we've had. It's, exactly. It's been, we've had t we had 10 to 12 foot waves the other day here. Well, you know. it's great watching, but it also, the, the beach goes away. <laughs> no, you watch the beach just slowly erode away when that happens. And then the beach comes back. And then it comes back again. But it doesn't always come back the same way. No, it's always different. It's always, always different. different. And that's where Google Earth comes in, because you can actually do satellite photographs and see the change. Sure. It's so remarkable in just a period of 12 hours. Yeah, I always tell everybody, go to, go to Google Earth, go back into archives, and look at Democrat Point in particular, which is the furthest west portion of the island and you can see how it, the shape of it continually changes. To give everybody a sense of place, uh, Fire Island is separated by Long Island, or from Long Island, by the Great South Bay, about a nine to 12 mile difference. Uh, one of the shallowest bodies of water in the world, you need to know the channel, but if you navigate the bay through the inlet, you're now in the Atlantic Ocean, and you can actually go from Fire Island to New York City in about two and a half hours, and if, if, if you're bold. Yes, you, ha you have to be bold depending on the size of the boat also. <laughs> I have friends of mine who still do it in like 24-foot boats. I, I think they're nuts. I, I agree with you. They but they do it. I know. I they know. do it. They but do. You know, nothing beats coming around and coming and see the Statue of Liberty Absolutely. going on to the Arizona Narrows Bridge, and there you are. Without a doubt. It's, it's a great view. It really is. You know, we're doing this show in February. I love off-season Fire Island. Uh, to give everybody another sense of place, 
The actual total population of Fire Island, the year-rounders, on a day like today, might be 250 people. Right. On a summer weekend, might be 250,000. Well, you know, we, I think that might be a little high. You know, uh, we, get, we figure about 15,000 people on the island here in the summer. On the whole island? On no, whole, yeah. no way. Yeah, you think that? You think? Oh, I know so. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Look, you have more than 1,000 houses in each community. We have 4,100 homes total. Yeah. 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 It's a lot of homes. It's a lot of homes. Yeah. Multiplied by a lot of visitors. Right, yeah. And a lot of day trippers. The smart people come literally between the day after Labor Day absolutely. and Memorial Day. A absolutely. Because that's the, time. that's the time you got to do it. My thanks to Tony, to Elizabeth Whalen Morgan, and to Andrew Parton, and to you for listening to this Long Island special edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure and rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. For all the breaking travel news, that's an easy one. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.